0: Listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%, on February 13th, 2021. And you've just been hearing Leonard Cohen, Democracy, one of our favorites. You are listening to KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula County Radio, streaming on 105.5kfgm.org and now on podcast on anchor.fm or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%.
1: And if you hadn't noticed, that is not our sound sound guy, Jim Galan, uh, who is off gallivanting throughout the South. Um, But we have with us today, we're pleased to have uh, Linda Gillison, you just heard, and Catherine Kanayau, uh, and myself, Mark Anderlich. And later in the show, we... Uh, want to have an extended discussion about using critical thinking and deciding what organizations you might join and which ones you might want to avoid. We look forward to that and, and welcome to the show both Catherine and Linda.
2: Thank you for having me. We are broadcasting from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. We are recording this show from the comforter of our own homes, also located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. Say for Linda, who is in North Carolina. Yes, I'm living now in the
0: ancestral home of the Cherokee, the Lumbee, the Tuscarora, probably other uh, wonderful native groups of whom I am unaware.
1: Right. Well, and we hope you are holding up and doing your part by staying at home as best you can, and by wearing masks when you do go out into public, and by frequent washing of your hands. The show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And once again, we want to give old Mick a shout out too as he is at home.
0: Hey, Mick. Okay, the word of the week is our first section today. And the word of the week seems to be critical thinking, though I noticed that while this is an important topic, Mark, it is not just one word, it's two.
1: (laughs) I knew I couldn't sneak that past you, Linda, you're too sharp. Um, And we will rely on your professional experience with critical thinking to get through this part of the show. All set. All right, great. Um, and Catherine chose the word of the week. Are, are you ready, Catherine?
2: Absolutely ready to go.
1: All right, let's get down to it. Um, according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, "quote critical thinking is the analysis of facts to form a judgment. Critical thinking is self-directed, self-disciplined, self-monitored, and self-corrective thinking. It presupposes assent to rigorous standards of excellence in mindful command." of their use. It entails effective communication and problem-solving abilities, as well as a commitment to overcome native egocentrism and sociocentrism. Phew, uh, end quote. And that's a mouthful. Let's break it down a bit.
2: Okay, so critical thinking is the analysis of facts to form a judgment. And this reminds me of a quote by Hannah Arendt, who is the author of Origins of Totalitarianism, as well as some other books, and she stated in an interview in 1978, the moment we no longer have a free press, anything can happen. What makes it possible for a totalitarian or any other dictatorship to rule is that people are not informed. How can you have an opinion if you're not informed? If everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather that nobody believes anything any longer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and so you need facts. You need facts that you can trust that are facts uh, with evidence, right? And um, and if you don't have that, then it's really tough to do critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the, uh, uh, the second part of that uh, quote from Wikipedia is critical thinking is self-directed, self-disciplined, self-monitored, and self corrective thinking. And that means, first of all, that this is an autonomous activity. In other words, no one can do critical thinking for you. You have to do it. You are the captain of your own critical thought. If someone else does your critical thinking for you, you are not engaged in critical thought. You are not analyzing facts to form your own judgments.
0: And the next sentence is really quite a mouthful. I'll read it again. Critical thinking presupposes assent to rigorous standards of excellence and mindful command of a commitment to overcome native egocentrism and sociocentrism and what this means i believe is that um we go we tend to go into discussions uh focused on ourselves and focused on our place in society we come from a particular place and we tend to come from uh, our own egos and when we go into a critical thinking situation we need to realize that that's the case That's our usual mode of action. And we need to commit ourselves to listen, to listen rigorously and to listen carefully, and then to be certain to um, not to give in to those usual ways of thinking, which have to do with centering on our own ego or coming from the culture in which we tend to live.
1: All right. Um, And on the origins of the word critical, again, from Wikipedia, in the term critical thinking, the word critical, which is Greek meaning critic, uh, derives from the word critic and implies a critique, It identifies the intellectual capacity and the means of judging, of judgment for judging, and of being able to discern. The intellectual roots of critical thinking are as ancient as its etymology traceable ultimately to the teaching practice and vision of Socrates. And when I was a kid, I called them Socrates, right? Um, I'm
0: sure you weren't the first or the last, Mark.
1: I'm sure. I'm sure sure of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunate Socrates sounds like a much better name. Um, (laughs) Anyway, it goes back to the teaching and practice and vision of Socrates 2,500 years ago, who discovered by a method of probing Questioning that people could not rationally justify their confident claims to knowledge unless they could answer those questions.
0: That's right, and figure out what egocentrism and sociocentrism are. No, no, <laughs> um, actually, right. I, and when I when I look at this basic Greek word, it actually means judgment or a judge, judge or the ability to judge, um, and we get crisis from that also. Right, which is a point of judgment. So a a period of judgment. And um, I think it it demands that we be discriminating in some way. We can't be without discrimination. We have to discriminate somehow between positions. That's what it means to be a judge. Um, Right, and there was old Socrates, I think.
2: (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I wonder how Socrates would handle our modern media and the positions that people take. Uh, I was absolutely appalled when Kellyanne Conway came out with the alternative facts. Like <laughs> right. you've got facts and you've got what? This is bullshit. <laughs> right. He he
1: he might he might be reaching for that cup of hemlock a little sooner. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Just kill me now. <laughs> right, right. Give me the drink now. Might, you, the drink now. Say, you know, one thing, um, I'll try to stick this in now. One thing is that Socratic dialogues end with the phrase said not by Socrates, but by the other person, I am at a loss, O Socrates. And really, that's what it's about. It's about the questioning. And it's about pursuing that kind of questioning in your own mind and not about, Socrates never puts down his foot and says, well, here's the truth, if, in case you didn't notice it. Uh, we just end with, I'm at a loss, uh, indicating modern scholars think that Socrates wanted us all, or Plato, when he wrote the Socratic Dialogues, wanted us all to continue to be in dialogue with what we saw in our lives around us not to be certain, but to be in dialogue and to be questioning.
1: And and at the same time, come to a judgment and make a decision. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so the decision becomes provisional, right? I mean, at some point you got to decide. And especially in times of crisis, (laughs) right? I I like this. Um, But, uh, uh, you know, that you could with new information, new facts, or new understanding, new questioning of what your assumptions were, um, you may come to regret that decision, that judgment,
0: right? Could happen because we're all limited.
1: Right. Well, the beginning of systematic critical thinking in Europe was, of course, Socrates, as we've been saying, uh, again in Wikipedia, the earliest records of critical thinking are the teachings of Socrates recorded by Plato. Um, and I, I'm i not even going to tell you what I, how I said his name, <laughs> Plato's name. Um, these included a, a part in Plato's early dialogues where Socrates engages with one or more interlocutors or questioners on the issue of ethics, such as uh, question whether it was right for Socrates to escape from prison. And I'm, I'm just going to back up for people who don't know, uh, Socrates was convicted by uh, Athenian court, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Linda, by Athenian court for uh, 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 corrupting the youth mm-hmm. somehow, right? <laughs> and, and he was, yes, and so he was he was sentenced to death to drink a cup of hemlock, which is highly poisonous. Um, and so, uh, and I'm not sure, well, anyway, um, Plato uh, Plato wrote down, Socrates, I don't think wrote anything down. It's all, all we know from Socrates is what Plato has mm-hmm. written.
2: Right. And
1: so this, this question about whether it was right for Socrates to escape from prison, the philosopher considered and reflected on this question and came to the conclusion that escape violates all the things that he holds higher than himself, the laws of Athens and the guiding voice that Socrates claims to hear. Socrates established the fact that one cannot depend upon those in, quote, authority to have sound knowledge and insight. He demonstrated that persons may have power and high position and yet be deeply confused and irrational.
2: That reminds me of another quote by Hannah Arendt. She, she very much questioned those in authority, and she said, before mass leaders seize the power to fit reality to their lies, their propaganda is marked by an extreme contempt for facts as such, for in their opinion, fact depends entirely on the power of man who can fabricate it. And we just saw the epitome of this in the Trump administration. Trump, just absolutely epitomized the authoritarianism, the grab for power, and the utter disregard for facts on a daily basis. I can't even remember how many tens of thousands of lies were documented in long-running documents uh, that I think the New York Times or the Washington Post may have had it where they kept a record and people could scroll through and see the dates, the the tweets, the statements he would make in public. And it was absolutely horrifying. (laughs) How many lies?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and, and obviously it's tough to do critical thinking when you're not sure what the facts are or alternative facts.
2: (laughs) Alternative facts.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, Socrates maintained that uh, for an individual to have a good life or to have one that is worth living, uh, he or she must be a critical questioner and possess an interrogative soul. He established the importance of asking deep questions that probe profoundly into the thinking before we accept ideas as worthy of belief or coming to judgment about something. Socrates established the importance of seeking evidence, closely examining reasoning and assumptions, analyzing basic concepts, and tracing out implications not only of what is said, but is—but of what is done as well. Uh, his method of questioning is now known as Socratic questioning and is the best-known critical thinking teaching strategy. Uh, in his mode of questioning, this is Wikipedia still, by the way, in his mode of questioning, Socrates highlighted the need for thinking for clarity and logical consistency. He asked people questions to reveal their irrational thinking, to reveal to themselves their irrational thinking, I should say, or lack of reliable knowledge. Socrates demonstrated that having authority does not ensure accurate knowledge as we see in Trump for sure. He established that the method of questioning beliefs, closely inspecting assumptions and relying on evidence and sound rationale. Plato recorded Socrates' teachings and carried on the tradition of critical thinking. Aristotle and subsequent Greek skeptics refined Socrates' teaching, using systematic thinking and asking questions to ascertain the true nature of reality beyond the way things appear from a glance.
0: (laughs) Silence.
1: In past shows, we've used We did one just recently about journalism, which we hope to follow up here uh, soon. uh, About um, you know, allegations are just allegations if uh, unless they have credible evidence, and you have to look at the evidence to see uh, whether or not it's real evidence, or if it's something that's biased, or something, or that the. The person who's giving you that evidence has some ulterior motive, um, and sometimes even if they have an ulterior motive, the evidence is the evidence, and you have to go. Well, you know, Trump is right about that, for instance, right? Um, and uh, you know, so sometimes we can't judge the evidence entirely by from whom it comes from, and and this is what makes critical thinking um, uh, difficult to say the least.
0: Right. And it becomes particularly difficult when we're no longer in a society where we agree what evidence might really be real evidence and what evidence is not real evidence, right? So there we are, we're in a society where we're split at least in two ways about that. And so it does make critical thinking and talking to other people critically uh, pretty difficult um, task.
1: But I'm, I'm wondering if that really hasn't always been the case. Maybe it's a little Please. worse now than, but I, I, I think we've had, you know, a society that's been at odds with one yeah. another for a long time.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right, but I, I, you know, and possibly it's just my, my limited perspective on this, but I, I just, in the modern world, we have not had until what, 20 or 30 years ago, 24/ 7 journalism we've not had liberal and conservative uh sites where you could get your news right I mean in my family where we're talking with great affection recently about Walter Cronkite right and how gosh he may have been giving us the party line uh, but but everybody heard the same thing right we all got right. this information and and that was a different kind of world so it does seem to me that and again i i could be persuaded that i'm wrong about that but um it does seem to me that we're for all kinds of reasons we're in our own little echo chambers nowadays and it makes it very very difficult for us to talk in an evaluative way to people who don't agree with us and with whom we don't agree
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right.
2: Now, providing the facts is really difficult, whether you're talking about COVID and science facts or whether you're dealing with historical facts. um, There is so much division. Sometimes I think I was bred for this time, (laughs) born and bred for this time, because my nature is to question everything and to look things up for sources and and for facts. That seems to be my anchor in life. Are those not just what some source or news station says, but what are the actual facts? I I remember when I was five (laughs) arguing with my parents, telling them there was no such thing as Santa Claus. And I had proof because the handwriting on the packages from Santa Claus packages was exactly the same handwriting as my mom's handwriting on the tags. The same wrapping paper and the boxes came from stores that were in our city from the shopping. It was not Santa Claus. And it wasn't enough for me to just tell them, at which point my father's laughing, thinking, oh, we've got a handful, you know, here. <laughs> what is she going to be like when she's older? Yeah. But I had to warn everybody else. So my parents had a bunch of angry parents coming to their door and calling that oh, I had destroyed the fantasy of Santa Claus for their kids as well <laughs> with my proof. <group. laughs> and if you were they- a
1: lo- you were you were a lovely child.
0: <laughs> and if anyone is listening to this uh, to this show, uh, Catherine's position is not necessarily the position of voice of the people. <laughs>
1: Right? There you go. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Opinions are purely of the authors and not because I I still want to believe in Santa Claus.
0: <laughs> yeah, you go right ahead.
1: <laughs> uh, well, you know, and and so but what's the harm, right? I mean, if you don't believe in Santa and Santa's not going to bring you presents, right? And if you believe in Santa and Santa doesn't exist, then what have you lost, right? <laughs> it's it's like Pascal's <laughs> Pascal's wager about God, right?
0: <laughs> we better yeah. get back to Socrates here. <laughs> <laughs> back to
1: Socrates. <clears throat> <clears throat> well, uh, Wikipedia finishes up on uh, on Socrates. Uh, Socrates set the agenda for the tradition of critical thinking, namely in in, in European culture, Western culture. To, namely, to reflectively question common beliefs and explanations, carefully distinguishing beliefs that are reasonable and logical from those that, however appealing to our native egocentrism, there we go, and, and that doesn't mean Native American, it's, it's like our own, our own individual egocentrism, however much they serve our vested interests, which is plenty, however comfortable or comforting they may be, they, if they lack adequate evidence or rational foundation, uh, they should not warrant belief. Yeah, that's a that's a tough self discipline to to put yourself to. Yep.
0: Yep. you're right. And Linda, you
1: you had a recent. There's some recent things on Socrates.
0: No, you I was. It was just what I sort of uh, couldn't keep myself from throwing in before that ah. that. You know, recent scholars have have pointed out, being sort of a questioning bunch and cynical bunch and so on, have questioned whether uh, Socrates, well, whether the answer was important to Socrates or whether it was the process of getting to the answer that was important to Uh,
1: Socrates.
0: Right. Uh, By careful, critical thinking. And if you critically think, then you'll get to the right answer, but Socrates wasn't about telling you what the answer was.
1: Right. Yeah. That's good.
0: All right. So should we move on to current news? Yeah. There's a lot to cover from this week. I myself have put in a plea that we not cover the impeachment. And Yeah. No impeachment. I have swayed the editor of this program. Right. (laughs) So so what's in our first, in our first current news um, show, Mark?
1: Well, as, as everyone knows that there's uh, Trump is being impeached. No, um, <laughs> I'm,
2: sure um, I'm <laughs> up. I, I,
1: just, just seeing if that bourbon kicked in there, Linda. Um, <laughs> um, do, uh, well, despite the slow rollout of some vaccines, unfortunately, the pandemic is still with us and is still uh, among the worst it has been in the U S although it's improving. Um, The overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases is slowly dropping, but is still very high. Now at a rate of about 113,000 cases a day. It is fair to say that the coronavirus is still out of control in the U.S. For those of you who believe that we need to risk COVID infection to save the economy, um, here's something for you. The economy will not recover until people feel safe enough from the coronavirus, and have enough money to spend into the economy I the world health
0: Organization. i think you've said yes. before haven't you
1: what? absolutely
0: every week every week.
1: <laughs> every week um because it seems like there are some people who don't seem to understand that right um mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the World Health Organization, WHO, advised governments that before reopening the economy, rates of positivity in testing should remain at 5% or lower for at least 14 days, which means that out of all tests conducted, how many came back positive positive for COVID-19 should be 5% or less for two weeks. Montana the past two weeks has barely not met the goal with a steady positivity rate of just over five percent the last two weeks. Some of the highest positivity rates in the nation remain in Idaho at 25 percent and South Dakota at 18 percent. Both states that that really didn't have much of a mask, uh, mandatory mask wearing, by the way, especially South Dakota. Um, Wyoming, on the other hand, is steady at one percent, and North Dakota is at steady at 2% and those are the only states in our region that has met the WHO standards for reopening the economy. Montana is on the cusp. Uh, Montana still has reported 100 hospitalizations as of Friday, a decrease of only two from a week ago. This is an improvement over earlier this winter, but it's still continuing to put stress on weary staff, and filling up ICU beds and stretching medical resources in the state to its limit. And according to a report on January 15th in STAT, the uh, health magazine, a new more transmissible variant of the virus that causes COVID-19 could sweep the United States in coming weeks and become the dominant strain as soon as March, leading to a new surge of cases through the spring, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned. The CDC believes the variant known as B117 is still circulating at low levels in the US, but they acknowledge the variant is likely more widespread here than is currently recognized.
0: So according to World Health Organization, positivity standards shouldn't standards, shouldn't the new governor, uh, Greg Gianforte, consider more statewide closures and limitations?
1: Well, and every day of his administration, he should, yes, but he has promised he won't. In fact, he just repealed the mandatory mask uh, uh, wearing in public in Montana um, After only after he signed a bill from the legislature giving businesses and um, other entities immunity from lawsuits from COVID. Um, And so which you, you can see where his uh, values lie. Um, so uh, thanks to Congress and their ineffective uh, action, uh, ineffectiveness, we still don't have enough money in the economy through stimulus checks, compounding the problems and trying to control the pandemic. Congress's ineffective action has put states in a very tough position, either close down the economy, control the COVID-19 virus but severely reducing people's income, or leave the economy partially open to allow people more economic security, but to allow the pandemic to infect and kill more people than otherwise would be the case.
0: I'm gonna try to say this in Jim Gillan's voice. (laughs) That's Sophie's (laughs) choice. No matter what you choose, it creates harm. (laughs) Yeah, very good. Very good, very good.
1: Yes. Well, that's right, Linda. And these these COVID-19 figures are according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website and the state of Montana. Uh, We are certainly nowhere done with this virus yet, as it is still at large in the U.S. and spreading. Uh, At almost 480,000 deaths, the U.S. is still the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. The U.S. accounted for 20% of all the deaths in the world and for 25% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population.
0: That's a really grim thing to be exceptional at.
1: Yep, it is. And we have been saying this since February, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks, to distance themselves from others, and to frequently wash their hands if we are going to beat this pandemic regardless of whether the law mandates it or not. Um, in Montana, we need to bend the curve down this way so our hospitals are not overwhelmed. And we're not out of the woods yet. This other ver- There's a couple of variations of COVID that could sweep through this spring. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. For every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much farther from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity through vaccination and fully reopening the economy. Uh, Speaking of vaccines, you have at least one story about them, right, Linda?
0: Right, I have. If you'll let me just report briefly on it. Yeah. This article was posted on a a streaming service which I take called The Daily Yonder, and it focuses on rural America. And um, we get a lot of information there that we don't get in um, mainstream media. Um, and it's actually focused on a town called Davidson, North Carolina, which is down in the south of North Carolina. I'll just read a few lines here. Jane Campbell is frustrated. Campbell, the town commissioner in Davidson, North Carolina, worries that some of her constituents, especially older adults, don't have a way to get to COVID 19 vaccine sites. From Davidson, the nearest locations for anyone seeking a shot have been at mass vaccination events in the Charlotte area, more than a half hour away, Campbell said. For many older adults who needed transportation, this was too far. I can get volunteers to drive them, but I don't think it's prudent or safe to put a volunteer and a person needing the vaccine in the same car for a 35 minute drive each way, she said. It needs to be COVID safe transportation. So this article is pointing out how many old people, how many infirm people, how many uh, people in rural communities um, across the United States are just being left at the post on this business of getting, um, of getting um, uh, vaccinations. And the article was called, Without a Ride, Many in Need Have No Shot a uh, pretty bad pun, but have no shot at COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and I think it's, it's one of the things that we really need to think about in this country. We're all sort of worried about where do we get our vaccines and when are we in line and so on. But this is clearly a matter which has not been thought about, no surprise at all, uh, by the appropriate responsible people uh, who were supposed to be dealing with the logistics for this kind of for this kind of uh, distribution of vaccines, that older folks who cannot get out of their houses, who don't are not allowed to drive anymore or don't wanna drive anymore, uh, people who live in urban communities, maybe communities of color, who also don't have any particular way of being able to get themselves around and can't afford a cab are all left out. And this is in our own country. This is leave aside the other countries where they can't get vaccine at all because of intellectual property agreements with the Mm -hmm. uh, World Trade Organization. Um, But think how many people there are who are older like me and who can't, uh, maybe can't deal with a computer. And the only way they're being told you can sign in for, uh, for an appointment is by going online or by getting on a phone and you just have to sit there and keep calling the two people who are answering the phone for hours on end. So this is really, uh, it's something that can slide out of our uh, our perspective, I think, as we worry about where we're gonna get our own shots, we being relatively savvy, relatively urban, uh, self-transporting adults. But there are many, many people who belong to these groups of rural people, uh, shut-ins, older people who are just being completely closed out of anything that uh, resembles um, distribution in in an appropriate or an efficient way. So that's what this article was about. And uh, I would recommend people to Daily Yonder if you care about what goes on in uh, rural America because they do tend to have lots of good articles so that that's the thing it's uh it's a huge problem, but it's not a an evenly spread problem. It's mm-hmm. not a problem which is being evenly borne by all of us um, right. uh, and we just need to get a handle on that in this country. we should do better
2: yeah and that's my yeah.
0: speech right
2: okay, thanks, Mark, for letting me put that in yeah. I think this is compounded here in Montana even more in some other western states with our temperatures through Mm -hmm. the winter with the weather. I mean, we've just had a week of sub-zero temperatures here and thankfully we didn't have a ton of snow, at least here in Helena. We had uh, a couple feet of it, but other places that get higher precipitation have higher snow loads like down in Bozeman and Missoula sometimes. But When you look at the rural areas, I remember winters here where we have had snow that blocked off Native American reservations, uh, huge areas of the state that were inundated with snow and needing to get plowing taken care of. And you had these severe cold temperatures, how are people going to get out, especially the older people that are already more sensitive to temps and weather conditions like that? Yep. Right.
1: Through Catherine. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> sort of uh, overall, even, you know, nas- nationwide, uh, vaccination is slow going, um, despite promises that <laughs> there would be a lot more people vaccinated by now. Um, Montana has only fully immunized 4.7% of our population. Uh, and that's according to the state of Montana website. Um, which, by the way, is mostly healthcare providers and people in nursing homes and other assisted living situations.
0: Well, I'm afraid to ask, Mark, how are we doing on the economic front? What's the good news?
1: (laughs) What's the good news?
0: That closes the thing, doesn't it? Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah.
0: Is there Um, any good news, Mark? Well,
1: you know, uh, nothing good has happened yet. Okay, let's put it that way, although things are in the works. Um, But we'd have to say that the promise by Joe Biden to have $2,000 checks in the hands of Americans by the first week of his tenure has already gone by the wayside. Um, And uh, even that promise was too little. And what's more in, in sort of economic relief, Uh, Some Democrats want to mean it wants to means test stimulus checks, which means they don't want money going to wealthy people. uh, You know, these paltry checks, (laughs) Um, you know, it's it's just a terrible idea to do means testing uh, uh, for these stimulus checks, because, number one, they have to set up a, a criteria you know, for who gets them and who doesn't, how do you measure that? How do you make sure people getting it that are supposed to get it under the rules? Um, that's going to be a terrible slowdown of getting the money out to people who are desperate right now, by the way. Um, and uh, it's going to emit, omit, you know, not intentionally certain deserving people. Uh, you can almost count on that. And because what they are proposing is still too little to um rescue the economy so it can rebound when the pandemic is over even without means testing it's kind of like it it makes you know the democrats look stingy and uh and maybe even makes trump look a little better because he was proposing you know bigger money you know before uh you know before he left office so um, what Congress should have done all along is what most industrialized countries in the world did is guarantee wages and business overhead costs for the duration of the pandemic. And also then give stimulus checks out. At, at, I mean, we would be in far better economic shape if that, they would have done that to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. So yes. right. Then you could have told us good news, right? Yes. Instead of this constant it, belly aching that we get on the show, Mark. <laughs>
1: right. It's, yeah. Yes, that's right. Um,
0: well, well, and yeah. so what they did was the usual put a little band aid on it, and uh, this will take care of things for now, but it doesn't really, right? I
1: mean, right, right. And I think part of that is either that they're not doing critical thinking enough or they're trying to assume that most Americans won't do critical thinking about their actions so they can do the minimal and sort of skate out, you know, skate out of town. Um, but, uh, we'll keep track of what is being done in DC. There is a package, a stimulus package, a sizable one. It's a little murky about where all the money is going out of that package, but, um, we'll see. And, uh, We'll see if they can, uh, you know, deal with the economic fallout for their mishandling. I'm, I, I've been saying this since last April that Congress has mishandled, completely mishandled the economy um, during this. And, uh, and but we'll see, we'll see what if if they can improve on that. So
0: great. Well, I heard last week that you reported on a recently released study by the Lowy Institute in Australia on how nations ranked in responding to COVID-19. Out of 98 countries the Lowy Institute studied, the U.S. ended up ranked 94th best overall. So why has the U.S. done such a poor job with the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: And that's an excellent question, which we're gonna spend you know, several shows exploring parts of that, um, but uh, and we've had, uh, some perspectives on the last show. And today we look at Mark Johnson's reporting, uh, excellent reporting in the Milwaukee journal Sentinel, which appeared on January 21st under the heading, "'The U.S. was the world's best prepared nation to confront a pandemic. How did it spiral to almost inconceivable failure?" (laughs) End title. Um, Johnson writes an introduction, as an introduction to the article. Almost two months had passed since the Chinese health officials first described a fast-moving new coronavirus that had jumped the species barrier from animals to humans. By the time President Donald Trump strode into the White House briefing room on the evening of February 26, 2020, of course, the virus had killed more than 2,700 people in China and forced the lockdown of 11, 11 million residents in Wuhan. Infections in Italy were rising by an astonishing 40% a day. That night, Trump assured Americans, quote, we're very, very ready for this, for anything, end quote. Then he held aloft a report co-produced by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, ranking 195 countries on their readiness to confront a pandemic. Quote, the United States, he said, is rated number one most prepared. End quote. The nation did indeed rank first on the Global Health Security Index, but the president never mentioned the report's ominous central finding. Quote, no country is fully prepared for epidemics or pandemics. Collectively, international preparedness is weak, end quote. So he didn't engage in critical thinking there, did he? Um, moreover, the index revealed a number of US flaws that had proved crippling in the fight against COVID-19. America received the lowest possible score for public confidence in government, low rankings among the index's 60 high-income countries for doctors per capita, which we finished 38th, and hospital beds per capita, 40th, and a dismal rating for access to health care, 175th out of 195 countries. What the index could not have predicted, and what stunned the nation's public health experts as months passed was America's lethargic and inconsistent response and its failure to follow basic precepts of its own pandemic playbook. Quote, it's not that the index measured anything inappropriately, it's that none of it was acted on, said Joe Smizer, CEO of the National Healthcare Nonprofit Public Good Projects. He said, I don't think we've ever failed on this scale the level of failure is almost inconceivable and we will present the rest of johnson's report in the weeks to come
0: Wow. well that ended conversation
1: didn't
0: it yeah yeah it's just Well, I've thought in recent years that the United States health care system is, and I know you're not supposed to use neither with three, but neither health, nor care, nor a system, right? (laughs) Just, it's not focused on that. It's focused on sickness. It's not about taking care of people and it's not a system. It can hardly call it exactly. And it's focused on money, right? So, yeah. And so here we are in a place where we're confronted with with a system which just does not do that well on a day-to-day basis. They don't do it when there's not a pandemic, and of course they don't do it when there's a pandemic, right? So it it seems to me, I don't know what the Global Health Security Index uh, measured. I'm going to have to have a look at that, but... um, um, for anybody to say that we were the best prepared just is not, it's looking the facts in the face and just saying something else, as far as I can tell. We were not prepared in any of the important ways.
1: Well, one of the things is that, um, in in this, the the next time we go to Johnson's report,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: one of the biggest things is that public health uh, has been defunded for the last 20 years, in the Bush administration, in the Obama administration, in the Trump administration, right, all of them defunded and uh, in, in you know public health. And um, it, while we had this great plan on paper, and supposedly the best network of public health and you know and 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 healthcare, supposedly in the world, right that uh, by defunding certain parts of that system, it made it completely inoperable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, you know, in the last show, we uh, uh, featured an author who kind of goes right back to uh, Jared Kushner, right? Who's Trump's son-in-law, I think, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, who uh, basically told an audience, Uh, of healthcare officials that uh, that the feds were federal government wasn't going to do anything that it was up to the market to solve the problem and that it was up to the states to engage the market in order to get personal protective equipment in order to get you know any supplies that we needed in order to fight the pandemic that right there you know let the market solve it that's that's the very definition of neoliberalism, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and that that's kind of at the heart of this, I think.
2: Right, very zero sum game theory. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even in Italy,
0: um, uh, I've read several articles that pointed out that the Italian health system, national health, I uh, uh, can't, I don't think that's exactly what they call it, but that's what it is, national health. Has begun to be defunded and modeled more on the US system in recent years. And, um, uh, you know, I think, again, we're back to that place where our system is not good at helping everybody. It's right. good at getting assistance to big corporations or whatever, but it's not good at getting help out to American people who need it. While in England, you know, they at least have the national health and they're accustomed to knowing who is where in that regard and being able to get things to them. So, um, And, um, and
1: even, even in the, in the case of, of, of Britain, where they do have the national health system, socialized medicine, um, because that's been so defunded as well. They, they weren't capable. Um, I mean, they 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 had the the wherewithal. If if everything was properly funded, they they could have responded just like uh, Taiwan, yeah. for instance. Taiwan has a very robust national health system, and it and it's interesting. Um, it, it's some. It's maybe a model that you know could be looked at here. But uh, uh, but you know some of the countries that did the best against the pandemic mm-hmm. has been we've covered this before has been widely credited uh, because they had they had an integrated national health system where where the national government could direct resources where they were needed and direct you know make directives for people's behavior. Like in China, they did. They were pretty extreme, right? They they locked down 11 million people in the city of Wuhan. But you know, uh, as bad as that is, it, the coronavirus certainly didn't sweep through China, uh, you know, like like death, <laughs> like uh, you know, uh, death on a horse with a with a sigh, right? And cut people down like it has in this country. I mean. We're almost to a half a million or uh, half a million people dead because of coronavirus. That's, that is a national tragedy.
0: Yeah, for sure.
3: It's coming to America first, the cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst It's here the family's broken and it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open in a fundamental way Democracy is coming to the U.S.A.
1: You are listening to KFGM 105.5 FM uh, in the Missoula Valley, and that's Missoula Community Radio. Uh, you may be listening to us on 105.5kfgm.org, live streaming uh, wherever you have an internet signal, and uh, or you could be listening to our podcast uh, on uh, anchor.fm. Uh, or searchable on Spotify or your or Apple or your other favorite uh, pod app apps uh, under uh, Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99, percent and in our second hour we're back with uh, Catherine Kanayau and Linda Gillison for uh, a continued look at today's news and some discussion uh, later on. So thanks for for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mark. So uh, we were just finishing uh, last time with the COVID, and I'll look forward to uh, hearing the rest of Mark's uh, Mark's report uh, in subsequent weeks. And now, Mark, what's our next story that you want to talk about today?
1: Well, there's a there's a, a series of of union stories here. I think that um, are very significant. Um, and first of all, we've been covering. Uh, pretty much what the Chicago Teachers Union's response to the Chicago school district, wanting to um, put them back into you know, uh, into the school rooms with students with really kind of no plan for protection for very bare bones uh, protection for everybody. It's just like, yeah, we're just gonna push you back in. Um, and uh, so uh, according to a Block Club Chicago uh, article article, on February 10th, Chicago Teachers Union members voted to approve a tentative agreement that will reopen Chicago public schools for some students. Of the teachers who voted, 67. percent or 54% of the entire membership voted to approve the deal, and 32. a percent voted against it. Schools will now gradually reopen, with some students expected back as soon as Thursday. The district and union's negotiations were tense, with much public back and forth, as union leaders said teacher members felt unsafe returning to schools during the coronavirus pandemic, while Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Chicago Public Schools CEO Janice Jackson said remote learning was not working for some students, particularly those who are Black or Latino. CTU President Jesse Sharkey sharply criticized Lightfoot and her administration in a letter to union members early this past Wednesday after the vote and noted that union's delegates passed a vote of no confidence in the mayor and CPS earlier in the week. Uh, Sharkey wrote, let me be clear, this plan is not what any of us deserve, not us, not our students, not their families the fact that Chicago public schools could not delay reopening a few short weeks to ramp up vaccinations and preparations in schools is a disgrace, end quote. The deal provides for a phased-in reopening, bringing back smaller groups of students and teachers in waves over the next month. While the majority of CPS students have opted to continue with virtual learning, families once again will have the chance to opt in or to in-person learning before the fourth quarter of the school year starts in the spring, Jackson said. Uh, According to the Chicago Teachers Union website, the CTU had forced the Chicago Public Schools to implement this phased in reopening instead of just opening the doors as the CPS had first proposed. The CTU also forced the CPS to aggressively vaccinate all staff Um, implement health metrics for returning to remote learning if an outbreak occurs, much wider accommodations for staff and their families with compromised immune systems, aggressive testing in all schools as the school district had no plans for that, improve ventilation in all buildings, more technology for students who are are remote learning, more support for houseless and other students in transition, and other issues. The CTU website says that all locked out teachers can return to work without punishment, but as of yet, without back pay.
0: Hmm. And there's more news, sad news out of Chicago about the uh, union community.
1: Yes. And earlier this week, the legendary leader of the revitalized Chicago teachers union, Karen Lewis died at the age of 67. She had been diagnosed with brain cancer six years earlier, And apparently died from that, although I I couldn't find a source that really said that definitively. But um, in an article in Jacobin Magazine on February 8th, they write, the death of Lewis, the former president of the Chicago Teachers Union, who helped spark the ongoing teachers strike wave throughout the country, was announced today at the age of 67. Lewis was a black chemistry teacher from the south side of Chicago. She was elected CTU president in 2010 as part of the Caucus of Rank and File Educators, or CORE, uh, leadership slate, after CORE stood with Black-led community organizations like the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization to fight against school closings, mass layoffs, and gentrification. And by the way, that we have covered a lot of this in past shows too, so if people want to go back and, and hear about that, they can on our podcast. Um, Lewis's leadership and vision turned the Chicago Teachers Union into one of the most democratic and militant unions, remade the political fabric of our city and nation, and touched hundreds of thousands of lives in the process. The 2012 strike put tens of thousands of people in the streets of Chicago at a time of austerity and widespread demonization of teachers, both in Chicago and around the country, The CTU walked off the job insisting that we deserved and could actually win schools and a city that served Chicago's working class. The strike put black, Latino, and working class people and a workforce that is overwhelmingly women in the streets by the tens of thousands against a neoliberal mayor, Democrat Rahm Emanuel, to say that the schools and city belong to us. Astonishingly, they won. That strike changed the political landscape of Chicago and the whole country, touching off a wave of teacher strikes that continue to this day, and that have even put ideas like a general strike back on the table for the first time in generations. We didn't win all of those fights, but Karen taught us that the point is not to only take on the immediately winnable. The point is to dare and to struggle in so doing, to make a different future possible." End quote. May Karen Lewis rest in power and in peace.
2: Amen.
0: And what's the next story, Mark? What do you have for us next?
1: Well, uh, the next one is, uh, uh, this has been in the news a little bit. Um, The union organizing campaign at the Amazon warehouse in the Birmingham, Alabama area is quite inspiring. Mike Elk of Payday Report gives this account on February 4th. Quote, during President Obama's administration, many were disappointed, including me, uh, when he failed to fulfill his campaign promise to walk picket lines if workers' rights were under attack. But with Amazon workers in Alabama now facing a vicious anti-union campaign, one where their employer, headed by Uh, One of the richest people on the planet, multi-billionaire Jeff Bezos, has threatened to close warehouses if they unionize. The 6,000 Amazon warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama, into the retail uh, workers' union. Um, It is clear that the union faces an uphill battle in their fight to unionize at Amazon. Despite the warehouse being open less than a year ago, Amazon has in recent weeks threatened to close the warehouse if workers voted to unionize. And with workers at the plant making $15.30 an hour, well above the average for Birmingham, some might be fearful that they would lose the best jobs that they ever had. Additionally, the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, or RWDSU, Uh, initially filed for a union election after collecting union authorization cards from approximately 2,000 workers, and it was submitted in November. Then a ruling in December from the National Labor Relations Board made the bargaining unit encompass nearly 6,000 workers. And this is the Trump NLRB at that time, right? Nearly 6,000 workers, a massive undertaking for any union. However, unlike past failed attempts, uh, campaigns at Nissan and Volkswagen in the South, where the United Auto Workers had no members at all in the local area. The RWDSU has historically had a very large presence in Birmingham, as there are over 5,000 members in Birmingham alone and 15,000 union members in Alabama, which makes them one of the biggest unions in Alabama, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. The historic RWDSU is also located right next to the historic Kelly Ingram Park, which is now a national monument to the civil rights movement. And unlike the failed UAW United Auto Workers campaign in the South that were largely driven by staff, RWDSU organizing at Amazon in Alabama is being driven mainly by rank and file members assisting fa- friends and family members who are pushing for a union hmm. I just gonna pause there because they're using they're, they're using the the kind of deep organizing or the CIO style organizing uh, that uh, uh, Jane McAlevey has been promoting so much lately um, and that the Chicago Teachers Union employed to to good use instead of kind of the top-down organizing model that the UAW uh, had failed, uh, barely failed, but they still failed in, in, in those uh, the Nissan and Volkswagen plants.
0: Yeah, I um, think that's one of the things that strikes me about Chicago and then about what you're saying about Birmingham is this idea that us is much bigger than just the workers. Right. Us is the whole community. And right. in Chicago, they certainly did organizing all around the community. So you get, don't get only a bunch of teachers who come out in the streets, you get thousands and thousands and thousands of people from the community who come out.
1: That's right, right. Um, that's right, that's exactly right. And uh, and that's a, a crucial element in, uh, in the Chicago Teachers Union victories, by the way, and in Los Angeles and other unions that use this kind of uh, organizing technique Uh, One of the key elements is uh, not only sort of bottom up organizing that everyone's kind of everyone in the union should be an organizer, right? That's sort of the idea, but also to make alliances within the community. Um, So the workers are facing an anti union onslaught every day in the warehouse, including anti union ads that have been placed in bathroom stalls. The workforce is majority black female and payday report has also learned that some labor leaders feel the involvement of the Biden-Harris administration, particularly Vice President Kamala Harris, could persuade many workers to support the union. Already, RWDSU President Stuart Applebaum has met with the White House to discuss the situation. Uh, Applebaum told Reuters in an interview, um, the larger labor movement has indicated to the White House that this is an important campaign, that this is a priority. Uh, and I'm gonna skip some of this because actually, uh, at the time, the White House was kind of non-committal and they did subsequently come out and say they supported the Amazon workers organizing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm. So um, yeah, and, 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 and that's the sort of thing Obama never did, much to our chagrin. Uh, Labor's later said that involvement from the Biden-Harris campaign or administration to help workers win an uphill victory battle at Amazon could send a message to workers that the administration is willing to stand for workers, uh, says veteran Southern Union and political organizer Chuck Roca, who was actually one of Sanders' uh, uh, Latina uh, organizers, right, Latino um said, I think it would be a good idea for any administration official to weigh in when workers are looking for fair representation. Politically, this is a great way to win back working class voters, Uh, end quote. Uh, Union voting has already begun and will continue until March 30th. And we will cover the results of that or any kind of news that comes because of that uh, campaign. And uh,
0: Biden replaced the... NLRB head, right? The chief. Uh, yes. Right. Well, he
1: he he replaced a a, a terrible attorney who was right. the the chief counsel to the board. Um, and I know I I know some NLRB um, uh, workers in uh, Seattle, mm-hmm. and Seattle covers Western Montana, and the Denver office covers Eastern Montana. Um, and I know, uh, you know, there was a lot of unhappiness about the kinds of things that the the completely anti-union people, not only on the board but of this uh, of this attorney, the chief counsel, uh, that they were they were totally violating the law and the spirit of, of, of the National Labor Relations Act that which passed in 1935, and um, and there was very little. You know that they could do, um, and it in it affected um, it, it uh, in in my experience as a union representative, it did affect uh, some of the kinds of charges that we were able to bring against some employers because uh, the the possibility. In fact, there was one we. It, it was a very, I can't remember exactly the the precise uh, legal issue at stake, but it was uh, it was a very important kind of thing where the employer had uh, uh, definitely violated a worker's rights. But that if we would have it was explained, if we would have brought this, if we would have pushed it, um, then it could have been used by this attorney as a precedent. And then, um, and and sort of erase that protection for all kinds of workers, right? So we were sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, And, uh, but now that guy is gone. He's, he's terrible. Um, Not all of the uh, bad, you know, Trump appointees are gone, but there's a, you know, a new chair of the National Labor Relations Board, and they can get back to the business of uh ensuring workers rights to form unions that's which is exactly their their charge
0: right exactly good well what else do you have for us mark what's what's next
1: well um according to our intrepid reporter mike elk of payday report who's been in missoula by the way i met him briefly He, he wasn't feeling he wasn't feeling very well so i didn't really but uh also Linda, you know, um, you remember Roy Hausman, right? Sure. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, yeah. Roy, Roy, Roy was uh, w- at one point was the president of the union out at Smurfit Stone in French at the Frenchtown Mill. He then he also ran for the Missoula City Council and won a seat in the City Council, and then he got an offer from uh, the Steelworkers Union, which his is his international union. To come out and be a uh, uh, the political his the congressional liaison uh, for the union. So he moved to Washington D.C. where he still is at. And uh, but when he first moved out there, Mike Elk was his roommate. (laughs) Oh
2: my gosh! It's a
1: small it's a small world story, right?
2: Um, (laughs) Yeah, for
0: sure, for sure.
1: So um, anyway, so Mike Elk, and he's, uh, he's got this really uh, spunky little uh, uh, journal called Payday Report. And on February 10th, he reported uh, a week after Columbus, Ohio schools returned to in-person instruction, teachers at three elementary schools there refused to return to the in-person instruction because COVID cases were still high. The teachers declined to comment directly on the sick out strike and the union denied that they were directly coordinating it. Um, And that could be, there's talk among in in Missoula schools, right? There are some teachers that are very unhappy with uh, the the kinds of uh, uh, protection that is uh, being allowed. And so who knows? Don't know if some action is going to come of that, but I know there's uh not not just a few teachers there's quite a number of teachers who are very upset uh, about the district having to go back to all in-person classes Hmm. Um, so we'll see we'll see what happens um another uh report from payday report was is is (laughs) Sort of a parting shot from the Trump administration. uh, Elk writes, a bombshell expose by the New York Times reveals that a labor contract signed on the last day of the Trump administration may limit the ability of the Biden administration to change immigration policy. The Trump administration even threw in concessions that would give the border patrol union more funding and federal support. And he quotes from the New York Times, one of the agreements, for example, says, quote, no modifications whatsoever concerning the policies, hours, functions, alternate work schedules, resources, tools, compensation, and the like of or afforded employees or contractors shall be implemented or occur without the prior affirmative consent in writing by the union, end quote. The complaint also characterized the agreements as granting outsized levels of official time, compensation for time spent on union activities that vastly exceeded what other public employee unions receive, the complaint said. Mr. David Saidi, a lawyer representing the whistleblower, estimated that these concessions by Mr. Cuccinelli, he's the former senior official performing the duties of the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, And ostensibly bargaining for the employer, which is the federal government, would cost taxpayers several million dollars a year. The Mm -hmm. agreements also require that the government cover union related travel expenses, granting it a benefit that Mr. Trump had banned in 2018. Mm -hmm. End quote.
2: (laughs) Well, he found one union he likes.
0: What's that? He likes Trump,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, my. Goodness.
1: Well, well and, and, you know, one of the one of the interesting things, too, is that, you know, I, I know quite a few people who voted for Trump and um, and probably, you know, in Montana, at least a third of union members, maybe higher. I haven't seen the latest statistics, but, um, you know, probably closer to 50 percent of union members in Montana probably voted for Trump. I don't think a majority. Uh, and a lot of them you know uh and some of them that i've talked to say oh yeah well he's you know the democrats haven't done anything for us you know he's gonna at least he's gonna try something and you know trump did run originally on you know looking after the working class and getting rid of bad trade deals and stuff like this and he he put the final nail in the coffin which had many nails in it already if the uh uh, the 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 pacific free trade agreement Mm -hmm. but um but other than that that was just pure um you know uh campaign empty slogans on the part of trump he's done nothing but you know screw workers uh ever since and so the the idea that he's going to defend workers i think is the evidence is not there, <laughs> say <Yeah>. that.
0: <laughs> by the way, there's a, there's a really good article about deep canvassing by people's action uh, mm-hmm. in, in these times in January. And it's called, Are Trump Voters a Lost Cause? And it's about how Democrats, even if only because they wanna win, they better find out what union members and other Trump voters, but it's specifically focused on union members who voted for Trump. What right. Do you think about the issues rather than putting them all in one bucket and calling them deplorables or whatever, right? right. It's a really good article. You might want to look at it. Um, yeah. In these times, January 2021.
1: Sounds good. Some
2: critical thinking.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. <Exactly. laughs> Big thumbs up there, Catherine. Yes.
2: <laughs> okay, so Mark, you have
0: something else for us?
1: Yeah, well, we need to unfortunately mark another death in the labor and progressive movement. In, a, in an article from Payday Report on February 10th, uh, quote, on the 10th anniversary of former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker launching his union busting attack on the right to collective bargaining in Wisconsin, Uh, John Nichols, associate editor of the Capitol Times, examined the role that the late folk musician Ann Feeney uh, played in the Capitol occupation. And this was this was a nonviolent occupation of the Wisconsin state capitol. Uh, From the Capitol Times, um, Nichols writes, workers were constantly thanking Feeney, who died last week at the age of 69, the lawyer turned songwriter showed on picket lines across the United States and around the world to sing the union songs of Ralph Chaplin, uh, Florence Reese, Woody Guthrie, Pete Sigger, and Josh White, along with compositions of her own, such as, Have You Been to Jail for Justice? Yeah. Uh, Feeney's, <laughs> Feeney's song uh, about the pride she and her comrades took when they were arrested for resisting injustice which goes, the more you study history, the less you can deny it. A rotten law stays on the books till folk like us defy it. Mm. Uh, It became a favorite of the solidarity singers who kept the spirit of the Wisconsin uprising alive with daily singing sessions at the Capitol. The singing infuriated Walker and his right-wing allies, and the governor pressured the Capitol police to arrest the members of that one-hearted ragtag ensemble. So Feeney came back to Madison and added her voice to the chorus in joyous defiance of the governor and his stooges. Walker was eventually voted out of office by the people of Wisconsin, and the Solidarity Singers finished their long run in the rotunda of the Capitol. But Feeney found plenty of protests to join during the Trump years as she rallied crowds for labor rights, civil rights, women's rights, and every other economic, social, and racial justice crusade that needed a song to get people up on their feet and marching, which is also uh, a line from her song, Mm -hmm. Uh, end quote. Ann Feeney played a few times in Montana too. Uh, And here in Missoula, I helped host her at the Union Club. Oh, wow. Um, Yep. So, uh, and may Ann Feeney also rest in power and in peace.
0: Amen. Mm. And we have one more last story, another labor story, Mark. Yeah. Um, Can we break into a chorus of bread and roses or something? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you lead, you lead, Linda. <laughs> Tell us your I'll story. follow if you lead. <laughs> um, so, yes, we have, we have, uh, our last story is, uh, hope, is maybe a hopeful one. We'll see. Um This week, Congressional Democrats uh, said, and Linda, you say they have introduced, reintroduced. Yeah, I
0: think I read that today. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. A major reform of the law regulating union organizing known as the PRO Act. According to Jim Williams, the Vice President and Director of Organizing of the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, or IUPAT, in an interview in the January 22nd edition of Jacobin Magazine. He said, the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, is the first piece of legislation that seeks to address 70 years of backward corporate-leaning, he's being, he's being generous there, <laughs> corporate-leaning <laughs> changes that have stripped away labor protections and laws through court decisions, the NLRB process or National Labor Relations Board process, and anti-worker legislation like the Taft-Hartley Act. That was passed in 1947, and it made right-to-work the law of the land. It did away with certain protections that unions had prior to that time. The PRO Act seeks to correct a lot of the wrongdoings that have taken place since that time. It outlaws right-to-work, which would help a lot of workers in the South and the Midwest. Mm -hmm. It streamlines and modernizes the election process for workers trying to organize, It takes away the employer's ability to hold captive audience meetings, which they do regularly during organizing campaigns. And as we heard in the uh, campaigns at Amazon in in Alabama, uh, they hold frequently. Um, It increases the the, uh, PRO Act, increases penalties for employers that do stand in the way of workers during organizing campaign and puts restrictions on employers to prevent them from interfering. Not, there is no penalty at this point for employers violating the law, by the mm-hmm. way. And so, so uh, again, he's sort of underselling it, I think. Um, the PROS Act would also have forced, um, will force uh, uh, employer, let's see, force arbitration and mediation Uh, and this is extremely important, people don't know this, it will force arbitration and mediation, which would allow workers to reach that first contract. And that's so important uh, when workers first organize, a lot of times when workers organize and get to the bargaining table with their employers, the employer delays having to negotiate. And after a year, if they don't negotiate a contract, the union loses their collective bargaining rights and goes away or they have to do another union organizing campaign. Um, The PRO Act fixes that. Lastly, as far as the highlight, it does away with worker misclassification and seeks to redefine what employment means in this country for millions of workers who don't even have access to collective bargaining because they're wrongfully classified as independent subcontractors. It would open up collective bargaining to the gig economy which is sorely needed as workers are being forced to, do, to work more and more in that independent subcontracted type model. That alone would be a huge victory for the working class's ability to reorganize our economy. And that's the end, end quote.
2: Great. That's there, an independent contractor, woohoo, solidarity.
1: <laughs> there you go. There yeah. you go.
2: Well, that's there's, Prop 22, right? I mean, that's Prop 22. Yes. Right. <laughs> in yes. And, and there's a, a lot of employers that will use contractors because they don't have to pay the insurance. You better believe right. it. You let them go whenever they want. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't have medical insurance as a, a independent contractor.
1: That's right. And, but on the other hand, they can tell workers who are misclassified, they can tell them where they're going to work. They're going to tell them when they can work. They're going to they can tell them what they can do and what they can't do. They can tell them what to wear, and but yet workers have no rights. I mean, this this is uh, hypocrisy. This is, mm-hmm. Well, it's getting close to the slavery that uh, <laughs> large many large corporations exactly want to get back to is yes. is pure slavery. And, um, and so that's a huge step backwards. Uh, and so the PRO Act would be really good. I would say too that, uh, to be honest, uh, that, uh, and, and I have to look at this act again because I thought it would allow secondary boycotts. Of, of, of all the things that Taft-Hartley outlawed, right to work is definitely not the worst, mm-hmm. not even close. The worst, in my opinion, was the restriction of secondary boycotts, and what that means is that unions are forbidden. Um, if, if unions go on strike or if they're doing some sort of job action, they can run pickets at the site of the employer, um, but they can't. Uh, and so, say say uh, say you have at the Amazon uh, warehouse in Alabama. Uh, workers uh, could go on strike and uh, and, and, and picket the, the Amazon warehouse, but they couldn't picket the companies that were shipping things to the Amazon warehouse, okay? And that's what a secondary boycott is, that they can spread out, do um, like what they call flying pickets, okay, and surprise uh, someone who's crossing the picket line and picket their establishment. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and that is exactly why the labor movement became, well, one of many things, but that tactic was extremely successful. And in fact, it's, it's kind of a revolutionary uh, tactic. It it could cause, uh, you know, a whole city to shut down and in, in, in a, in a general strike. Uh, through that method, um, and so uh, Taft-Hartley, which was passed during the um, uh, during the Red Scare in 1947, uh, the Red Scare uh, was, you know, anti-communist, and it, it they first attacked the labor movement because in the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And in doing this kind of very successful union organizing and these tactics like a secondary boycott, um, most of the organizers of these unions were communists or socialists. Mm-hmm. And uh, in order to gut the labor movement, they passed Taft-Hartley. And, um, and the labor leaders at the time, the Ruther brothers, uh, basically uh, threw all the communists and socialists under the bus, all the organizers, and, um, and, and they and, and other labor leaders at the time negotiated kind of a historic peace with uh, corporations. They said uh, corporations agreed that, well, we won't go after unions uh, if you get rid of the communists, the organizers in your unions, and if you drop the, uh, you, you drop the goal of ending capitalism. And they did, they, that's, that was the, the historic agreement, which led to uh, the middle class becoming huge in the United States. And then um, come along 19, you know, the 1970s and 1980, uh, corporations unilaterally um reneged on that agreement and started going after unions, and, it, and it's been that way ever since. And unions were caught flat-footed because uh, they didn't have organizers that knew the CIO style of organizing and to use secondary pickets and bo- secondary boycotts and, uh, and, and basically pulling the teeth out of, you know, you have to have organizers to have to put teeth in, into unions and mm-hmm. without teeth, unions have been just, uh, sh- you know, sitting ducks.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's 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 my brief history of the Taft-Hartley Act. <laughs>
0: that's great. That's great. That's great. Well, so okay. Do you have anything else for us, Mark? Or
1: well, I am I'm, I'm just <laughs> thinking if this if I don't think this pro act is going to pass the Senate, uh, uh-huh. but at, at least the debate's going to be there, and and maybe we're beginning to undo. Some of this, uh, you know, damage that's been done by the neoliberals and the corporations since uh, since World War II on unions. Our topic is rooted in our word of the day, uh, which is critical thinking. And Catherine and I had been discussing earlier in the week. On how does one use critical thinking in choosing like which group to belong or which movement to belong to? Um, Assuming that groups, you know, that we're trying to choose groups that are going to make a difference in society, right? There's a lot of unhappiness. There's a lot of things that are wrong. And people, uh, I think it's safe to say, regardless of what spectrum you're on in the political spectrum, um, you you know, people want to see change. And um, and so how do we know a particular group is actually going to make these things better or how or at least not make things worse? I mean, that's kind of the topic of discussion for for the rest of our show. So who wants to go first on that? Catherine, maybe?
2: Yeah, I've been I I watch social media. Well, not Facebook, social media. I no longer have an account. Um, But on Twitter and Reddit, uh, I've been watching for quite a while some of the temperature and the conversations that are taking place. And one thing that happened after Bernie suspended his campaign in spring 2020, it caused a massive shockwave throughout a lot of the supporters, people that had signed up. Um, registered to vote as Democrat just so they could vote for Bernie Sanders and so there was controversy all over phrases being thrown about dim exit because of yet another rigged primary situation and a lot of people were lost frankly and people spoke about depression and feeling you know where where are they going to go what what are they going to do? Uh, The Green Party tried to capture some of those voters and the Socialist Party, which was already organized, wanted to capture some of those voters. But more discussion started arising about a third party. And on the scene um, from, I believe, the early conversation started in 2015, but really started ramping up in 2017. There was a group, called the movement for a people's party. And I signed up and watched their convention this summer that they had online. Um, It was streamed remotely. And um, I watched the numbers through a number of platforms from YouTube and Periscope and uh, some others, not Facebook, (laughs) no Facebook account. And it it was well received by a lot of people. There was the, the same type of energy and passion that you'd seen in some of Bernie's rallies, uh, some of the same bases and messages they were building on the same platform that Bernie had. But there were questions that started to arise. And right now we're seeing like an implosion of some of that. A lot of the volunteers, the organizers, uh, regional organizers, people have been leaving in mass and resigning or being kicked out. There apparently were questions about transparency, accountability, um, organizational structure, and it was not being well received. Uh, a petition even circulated and that was dismissed. And so there were more people that were putting letters out. And apparently from the very beginning, MPP, which was created by Nick Brana, uh, registered as a corporation in Virginia, um, they required everybody to sign NDAs, non disclosure agreements. And that was concerning to a number of people on the outside like, holy hell, you know, how can you talk about accountability and transparency, a party of the people, and you're functioning with NDAs? And so there's there's been a controversy that has been brewing, but I was recently concerned because they put out a news release announcing the People's Party of California. It stated, I'm thrilled to share that we just registered the People's Party in the biggest state in the country, announcing the People's Party of California. If you're in California, you can be one of the first to register with the People's Party. We need to register 80,000 voters in the state to get our ballot line and run candidates. Now, I've researched (laughs) with the FEC and specifically the state of California, what it takes to get on the ballot. And there's two methods um, to register a party in California to become qualified. One is petition signatures. And you have to have ten percent of the votes that were cast in the two thousand eighteen gubernatorial election. So that ten percent would be one million two hundred seventy-one thousand and two hundred and fifty-five signatures that you would have to gather in that party. Now, Few more they, than
1: eighty thousand.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, they stated they needed eighty thousand voters to register for this party. But oh. the, that is the second method for qualifying as a party in California, according to the secretary of state's website, the election division and the people there that answering the phones to clarify uh, the information is if you are doing um, voter registration and they filled the cards out for that party, But that's based on 33% of the total numbers of registered voters on the 154th day before the primary, or it's like a 123rd day before the general election. So I asked her, well, since that's based on numbers that haven't happened yet, can you give me an example? She led me to the PDFs that showed the total county votes for the 2020 primary and general election. So if you go off of 33% of the 2020 primary, you're looking at, this is registered voters they would have to capture now, 328,636 was the total of the voters. They would have to capture 33% of that at six million seven hundred and eight thousand four hundred and forty five that's even more than the signature petition Mm -hmm. and yet one they listed they're a qualified party which they are not according to the website and when i called to confirm just thinking well maybe they haven't updated the website yet but no they haven't qualified and later there was a revision of the statement. They couldn't change Twitter posts because you can't edit those. So those got stuck in in locked in mode, but I had taken a screenshot of the news release and it clearly stated they registered the people's party in California and they weren't qualified. So they revised it later to say we're qualifying Mm -hmm. on that front, but even the numbers Where does this come from? So with all the controversy that's going on and misinformation that's being put out and the numbers and the process not being reflected properly, one of the guys that was the Western coordinator, he had made, despite the NDA, he wrote out a statement and he put it out. He was the West Coast Regional Coordinator for Movement for a People's Party former, and Veterans for a People's Party National Coordinator, former, um, Jerry Lee Perez, Jr., wrote out his statement. And at the end of his statement, it was several pages, he uploaded it to Google Docs. He wrote that on behalf of veterans across this nation, I'm sorry, the sentence before this, After talking with my veteran community, I made the decision to resign from MPP on January 9th. I also resigned from my position as the field director of Our Revolution Los Angeles. I have lost all trust and confidence in MPP and its leadership. And it's clear that they are not ready to organize in a transparent, open, respectful way for organizers across the nation. And I think that this watching this implosion that's been happening in the last couple of weeks. This is the type of example of the passion and the drive, the energy that people have, the hope of what they're looking for to represent their values. But you need the critical thinking. You've got to ask questions. You've got to look at the filings. You've got to look at where the money's going, what's happening because you don't wanna replicate the same failed processes that you're protesting and fighting against. And I think that this is is part and parcel of what maybe some well-intentioned people, but also more importantly nefarious people will take advantage of, that people don't ask those questions. They don't look into the details they don't look into the filings to see are are they a certain organization are they a corporation who's handling the money where where's you know in montana we talk about that all the time the dark money in politics and you really got to dissect and investigate in in order to find out what the truth of the matter is not not some alternative facts But this gets into the psychology, too, of conspiracy theories. I mean, it applies to a number of things. We have to have the critical thinking to protect us from the grifters and from the conspiracy theories. So that's a subject you and I talked about the other day, especially in relating to QAnon.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's... So, I mean, to kind of sum up, it seems like this movement for a People's Party, which has some very notable people, you know, endorsing it, um, you know, Cornell West being yeah,
2: celebrities. Maybe,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Prelim, yeah. And celebrities, I, I always sort of take that with a grain of salt, but Cornel West is, 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 uh, you know, someone who's uh, he's, he's a, He's one of our prize leaders, you know, uh, in this country. Um, And uh, I'm not saying that he's involved in any of this, but oftentimes, you know, like you said, if uh, you you get you get people who take advantage of a situation like Mm -hmm. grifters or um, which, by the way, I think that the uh, what's this Republican group that came out and was talking about against Trump and. Was you know trying to get Trump voters to vote for Biden? Was oh, yeah. that was
0: that the Lincoln Project? The Lincoln yes.
1: Project. Yes. Thank you. Um, that that's that's a major grift, right? Yes. <laughs> and um, it's you know these people are really dishonest. In fact, well, one of them ended up being uh, uh, being a, uh, a a kind of a a loose cannon sexual predator. Uh, mm-hmm. one of the leaders, and it's been coming, and it's been, it's come open knowledge in D.C. for years and years and years, and so one of the main people, the Lincoln Project is, you know, uh, but I think even even without that, right, you, you have to kind of look at, you know, the critical thinking would say, okay, um, these are supposedly Republicans who are uh, sick of Trump, and they want to see you know they'll take a Democrat over Trump, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and and but they raised a ton of money. They had no they had no plan to real. Uh, in fact, there there's no evidence that they switched one single vote from Republican to Democrat. Exactly. Um, and because they didn't they didn't have much of a plan, but they gathered a lot of money because people go, oh well, that sounds really good. I'll throw my money to it. And you know the People's from Party
2: Democrats. They gathered yeah, a, a lot, lot of Democrats, money from right. Democrats.
1: Right. Not from Republicans. No. <laughs> no, it was a lot from Democrats. And, um, and, 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 and basically, you know, I, I, think, I, I think it's a totally discredited thing. I'm hoping that's not the case with, you know, the People's Party. But it sounds like it's it's certainly drifting into that kind of morass, yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah.
2: One of the ironies, I think, and the Lincoln Project is a really good example of that because they put some things out against Trump, mocking Trump, satirical, and people love that. I mean, that gave them a dopamine hit in their brain. They're like, right on, you know, go get them. And they were asking for funding. You can contribute here, this and that for more productions. And a lot of people were contributing. A lot of Democrats were contributing to that, not knowing who the Lincoln project was. And then the investigation was done and it came out in the papers, who the people, you really need to look at that. They were GOP strategists. Sometimes the best, (laughs) the best way you can beat into the competition is to create the alternative product, be your own competition. So the study came out after the election and it stated that they did not significantly alter the vote, but they made a hell of a lot of money off of supposedly the left or the Mm centrist Dems. And that, that is a perfect example. People really have to look into where they're contributing to where are they, who's controlling the purse strings and what do they actually do? What do they produce? Not just what they're saying they're doing. You know, Catherine, I, one of my favorite examples
0: because I work with Move to Amend is, um, um, and Citizens United. Mm-hmm. Um, which, um, uh, what I've started noticing in the past year is how many of the text messages I get asking me for money Ash. actually come from Citizens and Citizens United. And um, a young friend of mine, who in fact was running a political campaign in Montana a few years ago, told me that he had met the young folks who in DC who started N Citizens United. And that they were actually looking around for something to name their pet. First of all, I'll just say it has nothing to do with ending Citizens United. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. They are actually as close to an official fundraising arm of the Democratic Party as they can be without belonging to the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And These were two young folks who said, what? issue can we grab on that's a hot issue that people are passionate about and call our pack that and get people to give us money okay and the result is end citizens united they gave money to uh they they give money to any number of democratic candidates. They gave money to Hillary in 2016. I mean, they are, they have nothing to do with and Citizens United, but they rake in money from unsuspecting folks who think they're really supporting a group that's working against Citizens United. Exactly. They have so much money that they have a huge, they buy huge mail, mailing list, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why you know you'll get something, I don't know, something just has nothing in the world to do with Citizens United. And I always just check, unless it says you're going to vote yes or no by just clicking on their on their link. But I usually check, and probably six times out of ten, it's in Citizens United. So that's another one of those things which has been crafted to make money from people for a reason which is not what people think it is. Mm -hmm. Now, I haven't looked at the founding documents for End Citizens United, and they may well say exactly what is they do. They wanna get Democrats elected, right? They may say that in their founding documents in their charter, but what people think is that this is a group that's working to end Citizens United which is trash. Now, uh, to get back to the Our Revolution, Our Revolution is a pack, right? Didn't Jeff, what's his name, Jeff Weaver, wasn't he the one who started Our Revolution
2: and he broke away from Bernie after 20? Bernie actually created after the rigging in 2016. He announced that summer that there were two avenues that he was pursuing in order to advance these policies and educate the public. One was the Sanders Institute, and one was our revolution. Uh-huh. And eventually, Nina Turner became the president of our revolution. But those chapters that were created all across the United States, it uh-huh. was for advancing these policy issues.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that they are not, well, um, that Bernie actually Uh, fell out with them because it was a pack. And he said, a pack is a pack is a pack. And I don't
2: work packs, right? Yeah, Jeff Weaver created his own pack after Bernie suspended. And he had some connection in the name to Sanders campaign with part of the logo uh, and the motto. And Sanders expressed his displeasure regardless of Weaver's motivations and said, I don't deal with, Packs like this, dark money packs. And so Weaver had to change the name of it. And so that was the pack that was um, disowned and disassociated with. Um, but it was after the suspension. It was not our revolution.
0: And, and Branagh was part of the Sanders bunch,
2: right? He was hired and then found not to be capable of dealing with the job that he was hired for. And he left, uh, as simply an intern. Uh-huh. Hmm. Okay, good. So that's a, that's also a misrepresentation. I mean, I've, I've spoken to numerous people that were on the inside and the beginning of the association with MPP. And I hear nothing but horror stories every which way it is the opposite of clear and transparent and accountable and democratic and people working class, it, it seems very much to be the opposite of that. So um, a lot of these people making, getting out, they're all warning, do not get involved. They're grifters, they're, there's all kinds of statements being made, but they're um, breaking with the NDAs and they're telling their story of what's happening to warn people.
1: Yeah, just, just requiring leadership to sign a non-disclosure agreement, and I assume that it's a pretty broad non-disclosure agreement, um, just raises all kinds of flags with me, just the very fact of doing that. Um, and when I had, like, for instance, and I, I've had experience with them, Um, where uh, a worker, you know, in one of our unionized workplaces would file a grievance and we'd work the grievance through to, and and they would get some sort of money settlement, right? And um, the employer, sometimes the employer would want to sign a really broad (laughs) non-disclosure agreement, um, which we always refused. And Mm -hmm. uh, basically, and like, they couldn't make me sign, or they wanted me to sign it too. Not only, not only the worker, but myself. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I there is a, a shred of argument there, which I agree with. Um, and that is, you know, you don't want to start spouting out how much money you got because then other people who might go fishing for a grievance and <laughs> try to do something like that, which I think is, you know, I mean, at least that makes some sense. Right. <clears throat> but the rest of it just, you know, just would refuse and, and they couldn't do anything about that. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not legally enforceable.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, but thinking that I was too, you know, that the worker and me would be too dumb to <clears throat> resist that. Um, and, and they would paint it as something, oh yeah, in order for us to conclude this, you got to sign this agreement. Well, I, I I began anytime I hear non-disclosure agreement, my hackles go up. <laughs> I've been trained.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very worried about that as well. I, I understand people wanting to protect intellectual property, um, yeah. it, you know, development, things like that. But um when we're talking about uh a political party, a movement. That's based on a lot of what was borrowed from Sanders' campaign, uh, where he talked about transparency and accountability. Um, I just think it, one, you know, there's there's a, a process that's explained. Malcolm Gladwell um, talks about it in his book, Tipping Point, about earlier adopters and, and the scale as you go on and more and more people adopt and then you get to a point where it jumps the gap and it becomes more viral, it becomes the movement. And you you just gotta get through this gap part in the beginning of it. But when you're looking at populist movements, populist political movements, there's always an element of virility without accountability or where cult leaders can rise up and like
1: Trump like Trump
2: exactly people <laughs> you know a lot of the people of his base they self identify as christian and yet they did not apply any of those biblical rules that measuring rod to Trump's current as as well as ongoing lifestyle and the things that he would say they totally whitewashed and dismissed it And that's where you really need that critical thinking. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on there that they can self-identify and say, this is is my faith, my absolute belief. And yet I'm going to waive all of those rules, everything that's applicable for this populist leader who says that he's of the same faith and yet evidence is nothing. And no matter what you bring before, I mean, th- this is very much like Thomas Paine. He's got this quote, to argue with a man who has renounced the use and authority of reason and whose philosophy consists in holding humanity in contempt is like administering medicine to the dead man or endeavoring to convert an atheist by scripture. <laughs> I <laughs> It's just not possible. So how... How do these populist movements rise up and continue with, without people questioning? At what point do they become lemmings rushing off of the cliff w- without knowing why? You know, what, what's going on? There is just a herd mentality. And I cringe every time I see these things start rising up if no one's taking the time to question, to ask. Right. If the movement itself or the leaders don't even yeah. accept being questioned or asked, I mean, you're getting into authoritarianism, totalitarianism right. here. This is the seeds of fascism. Absolutely. And I, I, I'm very cautious. I'm not an impulse buyer. <laughs> if someone's trying to You know, waylay me in a mall and say, "Hey, you've got long hair. Let's look at this infrared curling iron and this and this, and I'll give you a discount on it right at this moment if you buy it now." No discount is worth not knowing is that going to burn my hair? What what what's the health effects that this could possibly have, or the safety uh, aspects? I go home and I research all this stuff. If they're not willing to have me come back after researching and sell that product, it's probably not worth buying. I
1: I, I, I use that same sort of uh, tactic anyway with uh, phone solicitors, right? Yes. I, get, I get these, I, 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 for some reason, I got on this list of the Deputy Sheriff's Association, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've gotten their calls. And then all I have to do, and they keep calling me, and I don't know why, but um, all I have to say is, well, can you send me where your money goes and, and last year's, you know, uh, financial statement, uh, it, it, could you send that to me in the mail or by email and, and then I'll consider it. And then they just hang up. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I know that it's like a scam. Um, but you know, we've got, uh, we we've to to my mind, we've had three really huge, well, maybe more, but at least three distinct, Um, kind of uh, uh, people losing their minds over some big things, okay? And two on the right and one on the left. And the two on the right, I mean, I think a lot of people can identify with the QAnon conspiracy. And the other uh, really propelled by Trump more is the uh, stop the steal, right? That the Mm -hmm. election was stolen. Um, And then on the left was Russiagate. Yes. Right. That that all three of these things, there are people who are otherwise very rational people and very, you know, maybe educated, that sort of thing. Uh, Somehow, some way get caught up with it and believe, you know, that uh, believe the conspiracy or believe, the, you know, uh, whatever these three things were peddling. Um, I'd have to say that. You know, the and I, I don't know where and I don't know if anyone knows where really QAnon comes from. That's kind of a, it's sort oh, of- Oh, they know outlier. where
2: it first started. It was on 4chan, a nefarious uh, but, 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 board. But, uh.
1: <laughs> but where, but but I guess, but I mean- so, They don't know who it is. Right, and, and so I'm thinking that's the outlier, but you can see on Stop the Steal, obviously Trump was behind that one and was promoting it publicly all to to the very end. And, and you can see, well, his motivation was to stay in power. Right. I mean, so so there's that. And the Russiagate thing I think is the most concerning to me. Okay. Because um, number one, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was good that they had uh, investigations uh, into it. Mueller found nothing. Really? I mean, everything or directly, you know, everything was sort of a peripheral where people would lie about. I mean, maybe these folks lie just out of habit and or whatever um, and uh, were caught in a lie. And but it wasn't it wasn't anything specific to Trump colluding with Putin to turn the election. That was the charge. That was the central theme of it. And there's no there is no evidence of that. But, however, it became, it was on television news three years solid, Constantly. right? So who's promoting that, right? And most of those people, and I'm, I'm just kind of moving into trying to figure out, well, what, what exactly is going on? Most of the people really pushing that were former uh, or even current uh, national security and intelligence uh, people like John Brennan, okay. Oh, yeah. uh, appearing on these, uh, and, and really pushing the narrative and saying, oh yeah, there's going to be evidence kind of down the, just like conspiracy theorists, right? Well, what was their motivation? I think their motivation was that they, they wanted to undermine and get rid of Trump at the first blink. Okay. Even though Trump was legitimately elected in 2016, Okay, so we have a group of people, okay, who are current or and former uh, in in you know in the the uh, intelligence community is what it's called, right? There's like seventeen different uh, seventeen different agencies involved, and that there were apparently some people in those communities who were manipulating the media. In order to undermine Trump, so they wouldn't be elected. And as it turns out, uh, Trump, if he would have gotten forty-five thousand more votes or forty-eight thousand more votes in some selected states, he would still be president.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, so who are these people? What what are they do? What's their end game? Are they? uh, you know, are they like the Lincoln project? Are they grifters or are they got something more nefarious uh, behind them? And there's been very little investigation of that. That's, uh, that, that's what upsets me is that, um, the, the, the mainstream media hasn't dug down and, and done anything to look at their culpability and to say, well, here we're revealing what, you know, if there is such a cabal, right. Um, here are the people, here are the people doing it. And this is their motives. It's still unclear to me.
2: I think that kind of ties in. I can't remember the name of the article. It was written, God, part of it was written after 2016. Uh, the first part dealing with, I think it was written by the world socialist website. um, And it was an article about CIA Democrats. I think that's part of the title. It was updated again here in 2020, with some of the same candidates that had run um, before. Oh, I know exactly where it's at. And that was The CIA Democrats in the 2020 election was the second one. And the first one was um, the CIA Democrats part one by Patrick Martin. And he was showing a tremendous amount, not just CIA, we're talking NSA, retired FBI, military intelligence, all these intelligence divisions that um, were running for office and a hell of a lot of them were getting elected. And he, Patrick Martin was very concerned seeing a pattern of what he felt was a very slow infiltration. And we're, we're having major protests about people being able to pay their most basic of living expenses, of taking Medicare for all, and juxtaposing that to this runaway Pentagon budget that has absolutely no brakes on it and yet who does that benefit? And the more and more of these legislators that get in Congress that are from those intelligence divisions, you're going to see more of those bills and increased funding on that level. And yet there's still no accountability and transparency in those agencies to the general taxpayers. So I think that that's Part of the puzzle, part of the picture that we're seeing, and this is what mainstream media is complicit in, in what they were p- reporting and why we had so many of these Gates and Pizza Gates and all the, the conspiracy theories, because they're not really doing their job. They're peddling what their corporate owners are telling them to do. So real journalism is being relegated to independent media sources, indie journalists. Mm -hmm. I I just saw another journalist got bumped off of a major mainstream publication, The Guardian, um, Robinson, Nathan Robinson. And I'm just like, how many more are we going to lose? They're taking away their voice. And we have to hunt around and forage for real news in, in order to inform ourselves, to be critical thinkers. It, it's getting more and more difficult to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: For sure. Linda, we're almost out of time, but I'm going to give you the last word if you want it.
2: Oh,
0: gosh. I'm I'm fine. It's It's been great to listen to you guys and just find out what's been on your, you know, what's been on your minds this week and what you've been chatting about. Um, I, yeah, I just... Right, I, I think uh, it's important to know, uh, you know, search for the money and that kind of thing. I do, I, you know, Catherine, when you talk about people who are, say they're Christians, but look at Trump and how could they vote for him? I, I just think there's something more complex going on there. I think we have to be really careful about saying, look at these right wing Christians, how can they, I mean, uh, and Jim Wallace, who who's the editor of Sojourner? You know, no, uh, mm-hmm. just a scathing editor's letter that right after Trump was was elected, saying uh, to Christian uh, Christians on the right wing, you have elected. This is an incredible thing. You've elected Trump, but I I think there's you know I just think there's more going on as as you're always saying, what sort of who's behind it for whose good does this serve and so on and so forth. I, th- I just think there's more going on with a lot of people whom we simplify than mm-hmm. we think. And um, I think, you know, what we, we say, and this will be the end of what I'll say, but, you know, we always hear, how is it that uh people can vote for the republicans when they're voting against their own economic interest Mm -hmm. well the fact is they've got other interests that are stronger than economics and that's why they do it they do it because they think their culture has been being crushed out or whatever so i you know i i i appreciate what you guys have been talking about and, and i do think you know again my example of this is is and citizens united which wants nothing except to make money for democratic candidates and is willing to use any kind of front to get people who think that they're giving to a cause like movement for the people's party or our revolution or whatever think they're giving to a cause because they care about the cause and what they're giving to is something completely different and and that's And it is incredibly hard, and that's because it's planned to be incredibly hard for us Mm -hmm. to find who they really are, right? Yes. Let's face it, a lot of people in our country do not, number one, they're not as trained to do this as you are, Catherine. Number two, they don't have time to do it. Number three, you know, there are all kinds of reasons. But I I tend to think it's a, here's my conspiracy theory, right? It's a... a, (laughs) it's intended that yes. the whole thing be so difficult that anybody who's not Catherine Kanayahu knows, <laughs> all, right. And, and gosh, I mean, I'm just so amazed at you every time we get together, but that, uh, most people don't have the time or the background or the yeah. Yeah. To, to be able to do that. And there's where we are. We're being taken care of taken advantage of yep. by people.
2: yeah it's an <laughs> obstacle course
0: exactly yep. not to have the time not to not to have the uh, background not to have the whatever so yeah, yeah. it's great to hear you guys yeah. talk about it well <laughs> and
1: and that's why I mean we do have to we do have to wrap it up but that is why we have this show for one to yeah. try to di- digest a little bit give we give some evidence we give our sources, we encourage people to go out. This is all about critical thinking and um, because it is a challenge, it, it, it's a total challenge. And so if we can help in, in a little way and not to necessarily say that our opinions are always right, um, of course they are, no, um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, it's, it, it's the kind of thing where having a conversation Right. That is, uh, you know, that that we have done some studying ourselves and we've done some digging ourselves and we come to make some judgment ourselves. But yet in a conversation, you can make the judgment, but it's not sort of an absolute judgment that that cuts off discussion and new evidence or a new argument that might come in some other way. So um, that's why I appreciate the conversation part of it. Uh, uh so very much and i think that's you know that's what makes this show um show tick so um with that i i think um thank you both uh friends of the show linda gillison and Catherine kanayahu thank and, you and um yeah absolutely
0: always good to always be...
1: yeah i it's i agree to
0: you katherine to chat with you Catherine. this is a yes weird...
1: <laughs> yeah it's keep good we'll
0: do the doing keep up everything you're doing
1: <laughs> we'll do this again. Um, so uh and except
2: Santa Claus.
1: Except, except well,
2: <laughs> I'm gonna
1: I'm gonna stick with that. I'm looking for evidence for Santa Claus. So and I used to get presents from Santa, so <laughs> I don't anymore. I don't know what happened, but um, <laughs> um what
0: happened? Just be in touch with with Catherine after the program's over. And- <laughs> Okay.
1: All right. All right. That sounds good. Um, So, um, well, you uh, have been listening to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. And um, you are listening to it on KFGM 105.5 FM, which is Missoula Community Radio. Yay. Um, Or you are listening uh, live streaming on 105.5kfgm.org. Or you are listening to this in a podcast in the, at some other time of your leisure through our uh, podcast app, Anchor.fm, or searchable on Spotify and Apple and other podcast applications under the, you got to do the whole thing, Voice of the People, Radio By and For the 99%. And uh, thank you for listening. And we're going to close out with a song from the uh, recently passed Anne Feeney. So thanks for listening.
4: Listen up, we've got a war zone here today right in our heartland and across the USA. These multinational bastards don't use tanks and guns, it's true, but they've declared a war on us, fight back, it's up to you. War on the workers.
3: War on the
4: work. Fight oh, a war on the workers. War on the work. Oh, it's a war on the workers. And it's time we started calling the shot. Going to work. Could be the death of you and me, but we're not on. Our weapon solidarity. Jim Beals and Karen Silkwood. The list calls. 60,000 more gone Oh,
3: it's a war on the
4: workers War on the workers Oh, it's a war on the workers War on the workers Oh, it's a war on the workers And it's time we started calling the shots When they boost your copay
3: War on the workers
4: Don't you know what to say
3: War on the workers When they
4: talk privatization i Labor protection, it's a war on the eight-hour day, it's a war on occupational health and safety, it's a war on social security. Now thanks to WTO, GATT, NAFTA, MAI, the IMF, and the World Bank, it's a worldwide war. Oh, it's a war on the workers. War on- It's time right now I said it's time We started calling the song.